Welcome back to Pastorally Correct. I'm Chris McLaughlin. Today we're going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to share a devotional uh, in preparation for our Sunday morning worship service and the sermon that I will deliver from Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and John chapters 7 through 8. So I encourage you, if you are a member of our congregation at First Baptist Church of Lionsville, or if you're somebody who tunes into the sermons, uh, to read those passages in preparation uh, for the sermon. Uh, today, as we begin this devotional, uh, it's about the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength, we are told in Nehemiah chapter 8. Well, this word joy is actually the Hebrew word chedva. Uh, it's only used twice in Scripture. In 1 Chronicles 16.27, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem, and in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, when Ezra the scribe read from the law and the people wept. The word is a picture of being hedged in, as though surrounded by a fence or an enemy with no way to escape, and then suddenly a gate appears, divine, otherwise unexplainable deliverance. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, the enemy is exterior. Though God had promised the Israelites the land, which we're told in verse 17, they had wandered from nation to nation in verse 19. Though God did not allow the nations of the promised land to oppress them, we're told in Psalm or in uh, verse 20 of that chapter. The so-called gods of those nations were but idols, we're told in verse 26, causing the people to cry out for God's salvation from those who would otherwise destroy them. We're told that in verse 35. But God is good. His love for his covenant people endures forever. We're told that and reminded of that in verse 34. We're told that in a number of places in the word of God. In his presence is strength and chedva, the joy of divine deliverance. As David celebrates and he praises God for his deliverance and his, his protection of the Israeli people, as he celebrates what God has done for them, he remembers that God had delivered the people from Egyptian captivity. He had brought them into the promised land. He did not allow the nations of the promised land to subdue them. Instead, he demonstrated his superiority over the false gods that they worshipped, and he provided them with the land that he had so promised. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we find a different context altogether. The people, we are told, they heard the word of the Lord and truly understood it, we are told in verse 8, which caused them to worship. As we reflect upon what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8, though, I want to back up to the context and what brought them to this place. Why is Ezra mentioned in Nehemiah? What is the overlap? Well, these books are important. They are historical sketches, of course. They are historical narratives. They reveal to us what happened to the Israelites as they were brought back into the promised land after being taken away uh, during the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. Well, continuing, uh, I'd like to read for you from John Phillips. He has a book exploring the Old Testament book by book. It's an expository survey. That's the subheading. And it says this, Nehemiah now comes on the scene, 12 years after Ezra went to Jerusalem to effect his reforms. Zerubbabel went to Jerusalem under decree of Cyrus the Persian in 538 BC. Ezra went 80 years later, and Nehemiah 12 years after that. Zerubbabel went to bring about religious reforms. Ezra went to bring about much-needed moral reforms. Nehemiah went to bring about political reforms. Zerubbabel was a prince of the house of Judah. Ezra was a priest of the family of Aaron and Escrod. Nehemiah was a nobody. That is, his ancestry is unknown. 
All we know is that he was one he was the son of one Hakaliah and the brother of Nanani, and that does not tell us anything at all. We know he was the king's cupbearer. The king was Artaxerxes, who reigned over the Persian Empire for 40 years. The king's cupbearer in oriental courts was usually a man chosen for his handsome appearance and for his attractive personality. His task was to taste the wine before it was passed to the king. He was a man greatly trusted, a man with frequent access to the royal presence, and consequently a man of great influence. Oriental cupbearers were always persons of rank and importance. Such a man was Nehemiah. A careful study of Nehemiah's character as it is revealed in his words and deeds indicates a man of deep religious conviction, unafraid of hard work, fearless in the face of danger, and a zealous patriot. A fact all the more amazing when it is remembered that he was born in captivity and, and had never seen the promised land. He was, moreover, a man of wisdom and integrity, marked by generosity and unselfishness, focused energy, and one not bashful either about asserting physical force where he thought it would help or where his passions were aroused. Such was Nehemiah. With personal attributes like that, he did not have to rely upon a family tree to give him status and standing in the halls of the Hebrew greats. Without the work he effected in Jerusalem, it is doubtful if the struggling, fledgling pioneer state could have survived, despite the noble work of Zerubbabel and Ezra and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Again, I would encourage you to read through Ezra and Nehemiah and to understand where this uh, flow of thought is going. We need to remind ourselves, continuing to read from John Phillips, of the political situation that faced the newborn nation of Israel when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. In the 12 years between Ezra's return to the Promised Land and the arrival of Nehemiah, great changes had taken place. The Syrian satrap had so successfully defied his royal master, the Persian Empire, that Artaxerxes had been forced to concede to his satrap's own conditions for peace. This is the first sign we have of internal decay within the mighty empire of Persia. Deprived thus of royal support, Ezra's position as governor of Judea became untenable. The Samaritans stepped up their harassment of the state. The walls of the city remained unbuilt. Ezra ceased to be governor, and the people were in great affliction and under constant reproach. The Arabs, Israel's enemies then as now, had moved their hostile camps close to Jerusalem. Sanballat and his allies seemed to be all-powerful. Priests and people alike had gone back to their foreign wives. When Nehemiah was first exercised about going to the promised land, and restore, the restored remnant had been back there for over 90 years. Zerubbabel and his pioneers had passed away, and another generation had taken their place. Conditions were very bad. Some of the poorer Jews had been forced to mortgage themselves to their wealthier compatriots. The temple had been rebuilt on, to a much inferior scale. But already neglect of the Sabbath was a common thing. Nehemiah heard about it from, of all people, his brother. We are told here of what has come to pass leading up to the events of Nehemiah chapter 8. There is a desperate need to continue building the wall, and in fact we're told in the chapters preceding this that it has been finished, but it has not been dedicated, and the people have become spiritually complacent. Into that setting, Nehemiah forms an, a partnership with Ezra, who has since been demoted from his prior position, even though he had brought about great moral reforms and even spiritual revival, if you read through the book of Ezra. But here, the people hear from the word of God and we're told that they understood it, which caused them to worship. Because when you really understand who God is, what he has promised, 
we have a greater perspective of who we are, and the appropriate response often is repentance. The people wept because they were convicted of their sins. Would they remain separated from God, hedged in by their sins? No. God invited them to remember His divine protection, guidance, and deliverance through the wilderness journey of their ancestors. And we're told that in the next chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 9. How in spite of His abundant love, they had failed Him time and time again, inviting judgment. But God had not abandoned them. God keeps His promises even when people fail. The people, overcome by their sins, hedged in in a way with no way to escape, wept. But Ezra commanded them, Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. They knew God was uniquely with them because His law, His promises were read to them. In First Chronicles, the people knew God was with them because the Ark of the Covenant was brought into their midst. God doesn't always deliver by removing His children from troubles. It's interesting that the context in both addresses wicked enemies who sought to destroy them. Often, God delivers His children by becoming the very escape, the only possible escape. God's people are never hedged in, never destroyed, because God goes before and beside them. I reflected a lot on this today, thinking about the additional narrative in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. The people celebrated the festival of the tabernacles, also known as Sukkot, at the end of the chapter. This is verses 13 through 18. It was only at the end of that festival that the people actually committed to fully serve the Lord. It was only after that that the walls around Jerusalem were dedicated in chapter 12. It was then that God brought about sweeping reforms through Nehemiah. The book ends with the words, Remember me with favor, O Lord. We only experience God's protection. How fascinating is it that He is our gate from our enemies that surrounds us, and He then surrounds us with a wall that protects. He, we only experience God's protection when we turn exclusively to Him for deliverance. As I share these words from Nehemiah, we are reminded that Israel was attacked a week and a half ago at the end of the Festival of Tabernacles. That's what the nation of Israel was celebrating. They were celebrating Sukkot. Nations are riled up with Iran promising to retaliate if they actually do send troops into Gaza City or if other events continue to unfold. Will Israel turn again to God for deliverance? Will they then repent and truly become a nation they are called to be? Do you know that today the dominant worldview there is neither Judaism or Christianity? It's atheism. In that, in that context, in the midst of everything that's happening, will the people find that the joy of the Lord is their strength, that the only deliverance can be found in the Messiah who has come? I sure pray. David rejoiced because God's very presence was manifested in a unique way by the Ark of the Covenant being brought near in 1 Chronicles 16. I hope we get to see the Lord come soon. I've reflected upon this a lot today and throughout this last week and a half. As God's people, do we really believe that God is the only salvation? That our only hope in this world and in eternity to come is Jesus Christ who has come near, who is with believers today, who has promised to never leave us or forsake us? Do we eagerly await the coming of the Messiah again? That is the joy that we have, and it is our strength. I look forward to sharing more with you in the upcoming weeks. May God bless you.